Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting editing this episode, as he does for so many of them. A couple ideas in my head that I want to share with you, both of which aimed at helping people more effectively navigate this COVID-19 stuff, working from home, parenting from home, teaching from home, schooling from home, everything from home. The first is I am going to spend next week learning how to do a webinar, and the following week I will put one on. So listen to next week's episode for details on when that webinar masterclass online workshop will take place. Also, I will be launching a new round of parent coaching groups in the very near future. It seems like a lot of people need the support and I want to provide it. So you'll hear more information about that in next week's episode as well. Another place you can look for information on both of those events is the ADHD Essentials Facebook community. If you're not a member, go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials Community. That's A-D-H-D-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y. And you can sign up there. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, where he interviews ADHD adults and ADHD experts, and Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb where Will shares practical, actionable tips to help us manage our ADHD more effectively. Both of those are great resources during this uncertain time. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Chris. I met Chris at the International Conference on ADHD last year and found him to be just a delightful person. He's great, and he also works at NASA, so I had to get him on the show. In today's episode, Chris shares with us his journey from grocery store clerk to NASA employee. We learn about the role that his passions have played in his profession and how his drives and varied interests have taken him to NASA. All right, let's get rolling. I work at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and I have been there at this point Wow, for 20 years. And I do IT on the GOES program, which is geostationary weather satellite. Okay, so you work at Goddard. You work for the GOES, is that what you said? Geo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The GOES program, uh, it stands for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. It is the primary weather satellite for North America. Actually, it is a series of satellites in geostationary orbit. So when you sit on the ground and look up, from your perspective, it's sitting in the same spot in the sky all the time. So it is sitting and providing 24-hour coverage of weather. So it's looking at things such as you know, infrared and dust and cloud formation and water vapor, 
all of the images of the hurricanes forming off in the Atlantic and crossing, that's pretty much all GOES imagery. And there are at least three GOES satellites at any one time. There is GOES East, which sits over the East Coast and provides coverage of uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the continental United States. There is GOES West, which sits out over the Pacific Ocean and provides coverage of the Pacific Ocean, the West Coast, as well as Alaska. And then there is an on-orbit spare that is sitting in between and is able to provide coverage in the event of an issue or failure with one of the other spacecraft. Awesome. Wow. When you're doing sort of the tech end, the computer end of that stuff, is that keeping it like in sync so it doesn't, the satellites don't shift position? What, what I do is mostly pre-launch. I support the scientists and the engineers that design the spacecraft, that build the spacecraft up through, you know, launch and post-launch testing of the spacecraft. At that point, it is handed off to NOAA, who operates through, you know, NESDIS and the National Weather Service. And you're doing all this. You're working at NASA for 20 years, I think you said. And you're doing all of that with ADHD, right? Yes. That's really a big motivator in me wanting to have you on is I'm not even going to just say listeners. I have friends who hearing from someone working at NASA with ADHD would find comfort in that. And so I would love to hear the story of how you got to NASA as a guy with ADHD. Can we dig into that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, to make a long story short, I got lucky. I'd never even been to college and coming out of high school um, you know, I, I had plans of, you know, spending a couple years at community college and maybe transferring to a bigger school. I had decided to take a year off to work and to save up some money. And I ended up, I, 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 I wanted to work in the computer field. And I looked for some local, you know, computer shops in the area and no one was hiring me. And I ended up you know, getting a job at a local grocery store as a, you know, stock clerk. And, you know, it, it was, you know, a, a decent job. It was, I wasn't there very long. People started to realize, hey, you know, Chris knows a thing or two about computers. And so when there was an issue, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, some problem with the computers in the store or even daylight saving change, we don't know how to update the clock, they would call me over to take care of it. And I was only there maybe six months when the person who runs the IT for the region was down in the store doing upgrades on the point of sale system. And he pulled me aside and said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for someone to assist me in the IT at the corporate office. Uh, would you be interested? I've, your, your name has come up as someone who might be a good candidate. I said, you know, that sounds great. You know, that's, that's what I would like to do. You know, let me finish my shift. I'll go home and I will grab a resume for you. I think I was transferred up to the corporate office in Pennsylvania about a week later. And I was there for maybe another year or so when they announced that they were going to be pulling out of the retail market, that they were going to be focusing on wholesale distribution, 
And so they're going to be liquidating the assets, selling the stores. And at the end of this whole long involved process would be, you know, laying off the corporate retail staff. But I mean, that was, you know, six, seven, eight months in the future. And I, I really wasn't feeling too pressed because you know, I was still living at home. I had practically no expenses. And, you know, they, you know, offered, you know, were offering, you know, a fairly decent severance. And then I get called into a meeting with my boss, with the president of the division, as well as the person who was in charge of the front end of the store. So she was in charge of, you know, the cashiers, the cash office, and store security. The president said, you know, we consider you to be essential for the operation of, you know, the stores. So we are effectively doubling the severance package to entice you to stay until the end. Like the very end of the shifting of the company. Exactly. And for me, you know, again, you know, I'm living at home. I have almost no expenses. And how old are you at this point? At this point, I was 19. So kind of fresh out of high school. Yes, I, I, I was very fresh out of high school. It's like, okay, great. You know, I can do this. I'm, I'm not feeling pressed at all to try to find any sort of new work. And they're sitting there, they're offering me, you know, several months of additional pay if I wait until they say, okay, we're done, have a nice life. So how does NASA factor in? Well, I, I, I wasn't really actively looking, but posted a resume online on a Linux user website. <laughs> you know, ju- just to see what's out there, because you never know. And this is back in the day when that Linux user website probably didn't even have too many pictures on it. It was, I would imagine, mostly text. It, it was mostly text, yes. And quite frankly, I forgot about it. And then a couple months later, I get an email saying, hey, I found your resume on GLUE. stands for Gathering of Linux Users Everywhere. So I, I, fa- I, found, I found your resume on, on the website. Are you still available are you interested? Uh, oh, and by the way, the work is at Goddard Space Flight Center. After I picked my job up the ground, I called my dad up and said, you'll never believe the email I just got. Yeah, how does that feel to see Goddard Space Flight Center contacting you? I was shocked. I was astounded. I, am I dreaming? So I call my dad up and I say, you know, you'll never believe the email I just received. I probably ought to reply and say, yes, I'm interested in interviewing. Once I kind of get my wits about me and realize this is really happening, I send a reply and say, yes, I'm interested. We set up an interview, and fairly shortly thereafter, I get extended an offer. And so I, you know, I put in my two weeks notice with my previous employer saying, you know, ba- basically you know, saying, you know, I appreciate all the opportunities that I have. Definitely appreciate the very generous severance offer. Um, however, I have just received an offer, a once-in-a-lifetime offer that I cannot pass up. I've got, a, I've got a bunch of different questions and observations that are running through my head at the moment. One element here is I want to push back a little bit on the idea that you just got lucky because I don't think that's exactly what happened. And, I, and so I want to play a little bit with that, both so that you can reframe this a little bit maybe. And also so that the listeners can get a new perspective on some of the stuff that might be going on with their kids. 
because lucky would be like if I got a random email from Goddard saying they wanted to hire me because I have there's nothing that Goddard would want from me. Like I don't have the kind of specialized knowledge and specialized skill set that NASA is looking for. So, yeah, there's an element of luck in them finding you, but also there's a preparation there that you had to have NASA even take a second look at that resume. You had developed and built a skill set that they needed. And and also you had this passion for computers, for IT stuff that even in the course of working in that supermarket they're starting to see because that's what brings the higher ups to you to say, Hey, do you want to come and assist me on this IT development work? And Hey, you've done such a good job that we want to keep you around until the very end of this business or the very end of this transition. And we want to give you more money as part of your severance because of the quality of work that you're bringing to the table and the skill set that you're bringing. So there's a component there of your your passion for IT work. And also that passion is, sounds like it's making you known in some way. Like it's the skill, maybe just your willingness to talk about it, but you're becoming known for this skill set that you have because of the quality that you're bringing there, both in terms of at the supermarket and also on the internet, on this Linux site, which as I mentioned, 1999 in the world of the internet is like, I mean, you're practically banging rocks together if, when you go that far back. That's like 20, 21 years ago. And I intentionally mentioned that websites don't even really have pictures on them yet, at least not many. And if they do, it's taking like 15 minutes for that one picture to load on the site. This is the world of dial-up. Right. Yeah, the world of dial-up. And so another element here is that you're an early adopter of this technology, and not just an early adopter in terms of you go onto the internet and look at stuff, which is what I was doing in 1999. I was like looking at random wrestling websites and stuff. But you're also an early adopter in terms of understanding and knowing the computer technology that's being used at the time. And you're not going to professional wrestling websites, you're going to professional computer websites and traveling in those circles. And so, yeah, luck is here, sure. But also there's this drive and determination and interest and passion that's getting you to where you wind up. That's, it, that's getting you to NASA. And, and I share that because one, for you to, to own some of that, nah, you're just good at what you do. Because I was lucky is, is humble and great, but also my job is to build people up. And so you're also really good at what you do. Otherwise, you don't get hired by NASA. And also for my, li- my audience listeners, for the, uh, the parents listening, that thing that your kid is really, really interested in and you don't understand it and it seems like super niche and super like challenging may very well be them becoming an early adopter of something that is going to lead to something for them later. Even if you're not sure what to do with it, even if it makes you like some parents get uncomfortable with the kids that get that passionate about stuff. Look at it with a new lens and see what you can do to support them in this passion because it might lead somewhere. And off mic, you and I have talked about some of the ways your parents supported you. And I know that you talked to them even in anticipation of this interview. My next two questions are, one, how are your parents supporting you to help you get to to NASA, to help you build these skills? And two, NASA was kind of a big deal for you before this job offer. 
my impression is that somewhere in the back of your mind working at NASA would have been a dream if you thought it was a thing that could happen. Absolutely. So can we play with either of those two? Go wherever you want. There was some you know, luck and right place at the right time in terms of you know, things falling into place and getting that email. But, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, na- nowadays we call it STEM. But, I mean, as long as, long as I can remember, you know, I've you know, been passionate about computers and technology and science. Going back to early Apple II in you know, elementary school classroom playing with that and thinking this was just, you know, one of the neatest things in the world. And I mean, you know, about NASA, I mean, again, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, interested in the space program and in space exploration. And again, you know, the science around it, one of my earliest strong memory is, you know, watching the Challenger accident. I don't necessarily remember a lot of the things around it but very, you know very vividly remember and again you know memory is memory is affected by time and i mean we're talking about something that at this point was almost 35 years ago yeah 86 at least from an emotional standpoint that is something that is that will be seared into my memory for the rest of my life and I mean, Challenger was the uh, teacher in space program. And so a lot of schools, a lot of classes were paying extra attention to that for that reason. And so a lot of schools were watching the launch live. Krista's class watched the launch live. I remember quite vividly, you know, that's, that's the type of thing where, you know, some, some people, you know, you know, the younger generation might look at, you know, say 9-11 as this formative memory where they may have been fairly young, but, you know, they remember, you know, seeing, hearing. And, you know, for me, that's Challenger. And that formative memory sort of, and just your interest in STEM in general, is steering you towards NASA at least a little bit. I have no memory of actually doing this but i definitely remember the results i had a a little toy shuttle and that toy shuttle was the challenger you know coming home from school after the accident i you know peeled the labels off and my mother asked what are you doing you why are you doing that and i said you know challenger is no more and i ended up getting a another version of that same toy shuttle this time you know with the discovery stickers on it but i still had that other toy shuttle and while i don't remember actually peeling the stickers off i remember why it didn't have the sticker anymore yeah that that's you as a probably elementary school kid mourning what happened that day right And let's kind of stick with that. As a kid, you were diagnosed with ADHD as a kid, right? I I, I was diagnosed as six. It was actually later that same year when I received the diagnosis. Okay. And so a a diagnosis at six as an ADHD professional, I know that means pretty significant ADHD because typically we don't diagnose that young. And and that's actually some of the stuff that I had talked with my parents about. I was five and six years old. 
I don't really have much memory of this. I don't have much memory of that whole process of getting the diagnosis. But, you know, they, they talked about, you know, a number of anecdotes about how being hyperactive and having you know, difficulty sitting still and how I had kicked another student during story time because I couldn't sit still. And that the preschool teacher kind of you know, recommended that they look into getting me tested and look into if I might have ADHD. And they you know, said that, you know, they, you know, went through the process and I, you know, got diagnosed. And I mean, I recently found the original diagnostic paper from 1986 that has, you know, my diagnosis listed and everything. Um, my parents found it clearing out and said, hey, you know, we, we found this. And it was really, really interesting to look at. And 86 is before ADHD is really even a thing. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, we're talking in the mid 80s and the, you know, the understanding of ADHD is really in its infancy. At that point, the treatment is take this pill before school. Hopefully he'll grow out of it eventually. It's not even until like the early 90s before it becomes something that we're, we're looking at as a culture. So you're even ahead of that curve a little bit. So what's it like growing up as a kid with ADHD? Well. I mean, from my perspective, in some ways, it's a, it, it was a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, my, my parents were always really supportive, and they, there was no questioning, oh, is, is he really ADHD? And, I mean, you know, my, my mother was a nurse, and so, you know, she, she's coming from it, you know, from that, and, you know, knowing as a medical professional, I mean, you, you have some families where, you know, you know, you have the, you know, is ADHD really real? Is it really a thing? And, oh, you know, not my Johnny. You know, my, my parents, and again, you know, this is, this is you know, the mid-80s. Um, you know, my, we're always very supportive. And if it can help, great. You know, let's try it. I was on medication for early school. You know, I, you know they tried a couple, you know, different, you know, fad diets of, cutting out artificial sweeteners and so forth, or artificial flavoring and artificial coloring. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the fine gold diet. Yeah, I am. I am. So they, they had me on that for a while. And, you know, you know try, trying these different things that, you know, what, what may be able to help and give me, you know, the best chance to be successful in school, et cetera. And they also supported your interest in computers, too. Yes. So it sounds like you've got pretty supportive parents. My, my parents are wonderful. Quite frankly, I wish everyone could have family you know, like mine. Because I've, I've, I've heard stories of people who have family who's not supportive, who downright hostile. And can I just adopt everybody into my family? <laughs> you should know what, you know, having a supportive, you know, from, from their perspective, they wanted to do everything in their power to help me succeed. You know, di didn't always get it right, but I think you know, every parent can say that. Yeah, I certainly can. But at the same time, a lot of it is because we didn't know. I mean, like I said, you know, we're talking about the mid-80s where the understanding of ADHD, of everything that entails, wasn't there. And that's kind of what I'm getting at when I'm saying it's a double-edged sword. 
that, you know, my parents were supportive and did everything, but we didn't have that understanding. I, mean, I never felt any sort of a stigma. For me, it was just another part of who I am, just another trait. It's not something that I've ever really felt ashamed and not something I really felt a need to, you know, stand on the rooftops and announce to the world. It's just, I am Chris, you know, I have, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes and ADHD. Okay. It's just a, you know, another label. And, and that is from the standpoint of not feeling stigmatized, not feeling, oh, I am a, I am broken because of this condition. It's just another part of who I am. But at the same time, it kind of hid the seriousness. There are a lot of things that I did not necessarily associate as struggles resulting from my ADHD. For the majority of my adult lifetime, I've been untreated. As, as a child in elementary school, I think even into a bit of middle school, you know, I was medicated. Again, you know, there wasn't really much in the way of anything beyond medication. Yeah, there's no skills being taught or anything like that, I'm assuming. Right. So, so a lot of it, you know, you're making it up as you go and, and trying to figure it out. Even if you don't necessarily recognize uh, these are coping strategies. You know, I mean, like, like I said, you know, that was the treatment. Take this pill every morning. And then it sounds like at some point you stopped doing that. Because of side effects, then it was decided that I, you know, would come off the medication. So then I went through high school completely unmedicated. And I mean, that was a struggle. And again, there were subjects that I did well in. There were subjects that I did not do well. There were some subjects that even though I liked the subject, the way that it was presented, the way the work was organized did not work well for me. A great example of that was physics class. As much as I enjoy science and physics and everything else, I am quite frankly surprised I passed that class. Really, it was homework struggles that killed me on that. And the way just the, the, the way and the nature of the homework, I really struggled with just getting it done. That sort of sends me back into NASA. I mean, you've been in NASA for 20 years, you said, right? Yes. So clearly you're successful at NASA. Knowing you have ADHD, I'm assuming there's been some ups and downs, but nothing so significant that you're not working at NASA anymore. What is it about NASA that's enabled you to, to survive and thrive there for two decades? in many ways, it's something that I'm passionate about. Like anything, it's almost contradictory. In many ways, it's another job. I get up, I go to work, I do my job, I go home. You know, there are things that I find frustrating or struggle or really doesn't make sense, but I do because it's my job. But at the same time, it is an amazing place to work. I have had opportunities and experiences that I never would have had otherwise. I get to, you know, go into work. And I mean, I have worked with people who have been to the International Space Station. I have, you know, seen multiple launches of, you know, both projects that I've worked on go into orbit 
as well as other projects that happen to be down in Florida for and happen to see launch. I mean, I have, I saw the return to flight launch of Discovery after the Columbia accident. I actually flew in to Florida that morning and was driving to the Space Coast to actually to Titusville, which is where a lot of the support industry is. It was the eeriest thing because, I mean, they, there, there, there is a toll road that basically goes from, you know, across Florida, you know, through Orlando, you know, all the way to uh, Kennedy Space Center. It used to be called the Beeline Express. Now it's the Beachline Express. And, you know, you know, space shuttle launches always attract a crowd. And, you know, this being a even more special being the return to flight um, after Columbia, it's, you know, that much more publicized. They had the uh, toll gates completely open that weren't charging at tolls. And the highway was just, you know, packed as you would expect everyone trying to get, you know, as close as they can to see the launch. It, it was the eeriest thing. Because, you know, there, you know, on, on radio, you know, there's, you know, rebroadcast uh, the, the launch command loop where you have, you know, all, all the countdown and everything. And so you're listening to that. And as the countdown is reaching zero, this roadway that was bumper to bumper traffic is all of a sudden empty. Because everyone is on the side of the road looking east. And then above the tree, you know, you see, you know, the shuttle appear above the tree line and, you know, the booster separation and as, you know, the shuttle fades in the distance. And then once it's out of view, bumper to bumper traffic again. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. It was, it was amazing. It was awesome. And even in hearing you recount that story, right? I mean, there's, there, you're marveling at this memory and there's so much wonder in that in that tale that you just told, but it all comes back to this passion that you have passion for science and for NASA and for, for computer science specifically. I appreciate that about you. I appreciate your, your passion for, especially for NASA and for, for space launch and all of that, but also how far that passion has taken you because you mentioned that you didn't even go to college. You got into NASA without having gone to college. Because your passion for computer science and your passion for being an early adopter of the internet and your passion for really this specialized knowledge has kept you moving forward and, and created in you a skill set that, that NASA needed at the time. And I, I really want to signal that out because that's kind of where we're headed as a culture now, where having opportunities even if you haven't gone to college is starting to happen again if you've got the passion and the skill set to do the thing that needs to get done you know, i don't want to sit here and tell anyone you know, don't don't go to college don't worry about it it's no big deal right and that that's part of what i'm saying when i say you know i got lucky uh w w without any you know formal higher education you know i was able to do this but you know having a degree you know makes a lot of this a whole lot easier because you're self-taught. Yeah, I, I am entirely self-taught. I mean, I, you know, go, going back to my childhood and, you know, we had gotten a, a computer. It was a, a PC clone. It was a Commodore PC clone. And 
I wanted to learn everything I wanted about it. And, you know, my parents were always kind of hesitant. It's like, okay, you know, it's, you know, great that Chris, you know, wants to learn about this stuff. And, but we don't want him to go too far. We, we don't want him to break it. <laughs> and you know, I'm sitting here, you know, I'm taking it apart. I'm taking the cover off and I'm looking at, you know, how it works and, oh, you know, here are all these chips, you know, what do they do? And I'm, and, uh, you know, we, we don't want you taking up, you know, they, it's the funniest thing because they'll, they'll give me a little bit of a hard time about it, about how, you know, they would always, you know, warn me not to, you know, take apart the computer and not to break and everything. And now I get paid to, you know, take apart and fix, pro, you know, computers for NASA. Because they indulge you. And even though they said, no, don't take apart the computer, they actually let you clearly. Right. And I mean, it, it's something that, you know, I, you know, I've always enjoyed. I've always found fascinating story that, you know, my mom talked about. She received a call uh, there used to be a Byte magazine, which is a you know, relatively technical uh, computer journal talking about not just, you know, your standard, you know, consumer computers. I mean, you know, they would have an article such as, you know, a preview for Windows 95, but there were also a lot of stuff about professional, you know, commercial, you know, Unix stuff, you know, the type of, st it, it was a lot more geared towards, you know, people interested in you know technical details of computers and um, it sounds almost like a professional magazine yeah and they unfortunately ended up stopping publication and so you know they had called and were asking you know you have you know subscription remaining you know we'd like to you know transfer it to a, another publication so you know here are your choices or get a refund or whatever and they called and asked to speak to me. I mean, at the time, I was, I would have been a teenager. And my mother's like, you know, well, you know, who's asking? And, you know, Byte Magazine, like, well, you know, you can, you know, speak to me. You know, we're the ones who pay for it. You know, I am his mother. Oh, how old is Christopher? <laughs> and she told them, and I probably was like 16 at the 17 at the time and like does he actually read it it's like yes he reads it cover to cover and enjoys it it's like we okay you know we we have professional programmers who call and say that some of the articles are too technical for them okay <laughs> not chris though he gets it he, yeah he, he he seems to read it you know he he seems to enjoy it he seems to understand what it's talking about that's the kind of thing, though. You know, I computers and technology is one of the areas where I can hyperfocus on. Okay. I mean, it it is my hyperfocus. I mean, if you know, you could see my apartment. It is you know, there's you know, various computers of various ages, uh, and eras, and you know, components and parts and all sorts of stuff. It's you know, it is both my profession and my hobby. Which is really the best case scenario, right? If you can, if you can get your profession and your hobby to come together, right? Things are working pretty well for you. So that's that's great to hear. One of the first big purchases that I made after getting my first job was a big computer monitor. Okay. Which I mean, I still have it. Was a 19-inch Sony Trinitron. Really great monitor. Heavy. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're talking about a giant 19-inch CRT. Yeah. Because this is 1999 you're getting this monitor, so it's not flat screen. Yeah, this, this would have been 1998. 
1998. Okay. And so going back to that era of your life what's it like to get hired at nasa pinch me i think i'm dreaming if you had asked me even just a year prior i would have said that you were lying there's no way i figured oh you know i'll i'll be at some you know local computer shop you know fixing people's computer you know they come in and you know replacing hard drives or whatever for me, that's, that's where I was going to end up. I never would have thought that I would be sitting here part, part, you know, part of a larger team, but you know, taking and putting things into orbit for NASA. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. And I mean, you know, you know, I have been you know, in the clean room with flight hardware that is now in orbit. That's awesome. It boggles my own mind that I've had such opportunities. Yeah. And it's interesting when we were, when we were talking prior to the interview, you mentioned that there's, you sort of live in this interesting dual world of the mundanity of just going to work every day. Like it's just mundane sometimes. And other times you kind of have that moment when you're like, yeah, except it's NASA, like I'm going to NASA. So that that's pretty awesome. It's an office job. It's a government office job. There is bureaucracy. There is office politics. There are things that you look at and say, that doesn't make sense, but that's the rules. That's, that's how we got to do it. And so we, we need to check that box. At the same time, I also get to go down to Florida, you know, watch an Atlas V go to orbit and say, I helped build that. I helped put that there. That's incredible. And it's something that it, it's commendable. It, the fact that you were able to, to position yourself unintentionally in such a way to eventually land at NASA is incredible. And the fact that you were willing to take that risk too, right? Like that you took the interview. Because I'm sure there's some people who would, have, would not that would, would say, uh, I can't work at NASA. I'm not going to do that. Or would take the interview and flub it, which you didn't do. You managed to go and interview at NASA and come across as confident and knowledgeable enough to get the job, which is also incredibly impressive. In case no one has ever said to you, congratulations on getting a job at NASA, I want to make sure I do, even if it was 20 years ago. Still, congratulations. That's, that's incredible. You know, be clear, you know, I'm, I'm not a civil servant. I don't work directly for the government. I am a contractor who works for a company contracted by, but the way it works is, you know, the contract goes from company to company and all the personnel follows the contract. It's really just an organizational distinction. Cool. I mean, you know, take time off work, you know, go down, you know, interview. It was theoretically a, you know, quote, six month position to, you know, come in. They were looking for, you know, somebody who had Linux experience for some some things that they were trying to do and so they said you know for you know six months and then we'll see where it goes from there and also in the course of this interview you've mentioned that you're taking things apart and putting them back together like computers and so the skill set that you're bringing to the table has moved beyond linux are you still doing linux work is it has your position shifted to more of a hardware role is it just a whole lot of different things depending on what they need you to do? What does that look like? It's a whole lot of different things. I mean, primarily I do, you know, systems administration, you know, network administration, you know. 
So that's programming stuff. I mean, there, there's programming to some degree. A lot of that is more in trying to you know, automate tasks and you know, streamline workflows rather than sitting down and you're know, writing an application. Okay. A lot of it is, you know, trying to get, you know, servers and so forth, you know, talking and working, you know, making sure that you can get your email. <laughs> in space or just in general? In general. I mean, I mean, we, we don't run the email system, but we've, we've done a lot of troubleshooting when there are issues and, you know, we have our own, you know, content management systems for, you know, managing documentations and requirements. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes. A lot of businesses have applications that are specific to their business in terms of like customer relationship management and so forth. And I mean, NASA is no different. And I mean, some of it are, you know, just standard business applications, but then there are much more specific applications for your requirements management or even your engineering packages that will then take and do, you know, systems modeling or data processing and so forth. So it sounds like software and hardware both is what you're working on. It's the type of thing where having a wide and varied skill set can be very valuable. In many instances, I am the go-to person where, well, if anybody can figure it out, Chris can. That's a really weird feeling. How did you get there? You know, like I said, you know, I'm self-taught. A lot of it is just by doing. I find things that are interesting to me. I read about them. I say, hey, let me try this. Play with it and see what I can do with it. And I mean, for me, that is one of the best ways that I learn by actually doing stuff. I can sit down and I can read, you know, how to do something. Okay, that's great. I already forgot everything that I read. Possibly, you know, having that same document, having that same book there next to me as I'm actually doing it and seeing what happens and how, you know, different changes affect the behavior, that's when it starts to click, at least for me. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? Don't give up on your dream and follow your passion. If there is something that you love to do, something that I enjoy doing this all the time, pursue that. You know, whether it's computers, whether it is music, writing, whether it is fixing cars, if you enjoy what you do, then what you do will be enjoyable. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.